again, it's good to see you here. Uh, if it's your, as Flick said earlier, if it's your first time here, you're uh, equally welcome with those who have been hundreds of times to be uh, to this uh, congregation. We have a congregation that meets in the mornings, like this one, and we have a congregation that meets in the evenings. And uh, actually, this church is active in its community seven days a week. So uh, the church isn't the congregations. The congregations are part of the activity of God's community in this uh, wider community. So there's lots and lots and lots of stuff that we do every day, and I won't talk about that right now. But I am going to talk about the big dig, because in your news sheet, it tells you about the big dig, which happens across London, and it's happening on our farm. So look at that notice about uh, the big dig and our farm, our community farms just across the road. Uh, if you'd like to be part of that, it would be fantastic if you could. And look at all the other ways uh, there of getting involved uh, in the life of um, the farm. So, um, Sadiq Khan was going to come. And, <laughs> and there, and there's uh, the, uh, the subject uh, that we set today as Sadiq uh, came in to speak just a little bit and answer questions. In the book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament there is this verse. It says in Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 7, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you. Pray uh, to the Lord for it because if it prospers you too will prosper. When I was a kid I was told that faith and politics didn't mix. I used to go to church with my mum and dad and my brother and my two sisters uh, to a, a church called Homestyle Road Baptist Church in South Norwood and it had big pews and my mum used to sit at one end and all the kids we used to sit in the middle and my dad used to sit at the other end. It was incredibly boring. I cannot tell you how boring it was to sit there Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. I counted the lights. Perhaps you've already started on that this morning. I counted... Uh, the, the t tiles on the floor, I counted the organ pipes, I counted anything I could do to get relief from what was going on. And uh, we uh, went religiously twice on a Sunday. In fact, I had to go three times. We went in the morning, I went back in the afternoon uh, because there was an afternoon Sunday school and my mum and dad went in the evening as well. And I remember my mum whispering to my dad, she'd often do it actually, as someone wandered down one of the aisles, my mum would whisper to my dad, which meant we all heard because we all sat in the middle, um, she'd whisper to him and say, and say about the person wandering down the aisle, he's not regular, you know. <laughs> and I used to think, how does she possibly tell from his walk that he has trouble with, you know, he's not regular. But in Baptist circles, being not regular amounted to not showing up twice on a Sunday. You had to be there morning and evening every single week. And if you weren't, you were in a huge amount of trouble. I also remember the Sunday when uh, our minister, who was called the Reverend Donald Munkham, stood up and uh, he preached a sermon. I really wasn't listening because I was never listening to these things. But at the end, my mum and dad walked home in a very frosty way, and we had a very frosty lunch, at which my dad then exclaimed, he mixed religion and politics. If he ever dares do that again, we are never going to that church. Hooray! I thought, this is it! The breakthrough I've been waiting for. 
Let's pray that he mixes religion and politics next week. And it could be the end of the whole experience for me. So I grew up with this idea that the mixing of religion and politics was anathema. It shouldn't happen. The truth is, as I've come to understand it, and the truth is, as I'd like to impress on you, what doesn't mix is religion and apathy. What must mix always is religion and politics. We must be engaged in politics. Faith and politics do mix, must mix, are born to mix. Indeed, anybody who doesn't believe that religion and politics or faith in politics mix, you wonder if they've ever read more than two or three verses of the Bible. It's an extraordinary political uh, statement. Polis is a Greek word. There it is, spelt out, and of course it's the word from what, which we get, politics. A polis is just a city. Polis is the Greek word for city. The biggest polis in ancient Greece was Athens. There it is, the city of Athens, the polis of city. Uh, The the polis, uh, uh, the city of the people. And from that, we get the term politics. Because politics is about the affairs of the people, the affairs of the city, how the city, how the community is run. Politics has been written about for a long time. Probably one of the most famous political books ever written was written by Plato. And it's called Republic. And he wrote it about 300 years before Jesus was born. Plato's Republic. And his student, you know, uh, Socrates had a student and his name was Plato. And then Plato had a student and his name was Aristotle. You've got those kind of three guys following one another. And Plato wrote a book which was simply called Politics. Politics is something that we're all engaged in. Here's a quote from Plato. He says, one of the penalties for refusing to participate in politics is that you end up being governed by your inferiors. Unless we get engaged in asking the questions about how society works, whether it's London or Europe, unless we become engaged in that question, actually it's worked out by other people, perhaps with other motives. It's our responsibility to be involved. Now, loads of people will say to you, I'm just not political. That very statement is political. It's saying that I choose to opt out of responsibility for the well-being of the wider community in which I live. I live a privatized life. It's about me. Do you get it? Well, that's politics. It's a shallow form of politics. It's a dangerous form of politics but we're all political. It's like when people say, I'm not theological. Do you know, I I, I meet endless Christians who say, oh, I'm a Christian, but I'm not theological. I'm no theologian. Of course you are. It's just if you don't think about it, you're probably a very bad one. That's the truth. A very bad one. Theology is the science of belief in God. If I don't bother to think through my beliefs very far... I'll end up with some pretty shallow ones, but I'll still be doing theology, just pretty bad theology. 
I've got a friend, she's been my friend for years, I was talking to her on the phone the other day actually, and it used to be that she and I worked together on this huge project uh, for about a decade, and um, it meant that every uh, month we used to spend a couple of days with a gang of other people um, doing some uh, big thinking around this, and she'd often uh, pick me up and we'd drive to uh, the town where we used to all meet together, and... um, uh, she wanted to park her car in the park, car park, and we'd drive around the car park, and she'd go, Lord, Lord, please just give us a parking space. And I'd kind of laugh a bit, and she'd say, you've got no faith, you've got no faith. And anyway, we'd get a parking space. And then she'd say, there you are, you cynic. God has provided us with a parking space. The problem was that on all the months that we went and we drove around the car park and we didn't get a parking space, God got let off the hook. He was never to blame for the fact that there wasn't a parking space, but he always took the credit for the fact that there was a parking space. I was always to blame for the fact that there... uh, I was always to blame for my cynicism if there did turn out to be a parking space. On the occasions, at least 50% of the time on which I was right, I never took the credit for saying... I don't think that the way the Bible operates is at the level of God providing me with parking spaces whenever I need them. We were doing bad theology. You can do bad politics. Our task is to do good politics. So here we are in London. I'd like to talk about London and I'd like to talk about the church. It strikes me that there are three forms of church. And I'd like you to ask yourself which form of church you want to belong to. Because you might be part of this church and you shouldn't be. You should be part of a different kind of church. Or it might be that you're wondering if you want to be part of this church. Well, this is the kind of church we are. There are three forms of church, I think. The first is basically... The church as the provider of religious services. You know that, don't you? You can rock up and there's a service going on. There's a mass. There's a Eucharist. There's an Evensong. There's a, there's a charismatic worship time. There's a time of worship. The church is the provider of religious services. In actual fact, it's all the same. You might go to a very Anglo-Catholic, very high church, bells and smells uh, service, which is, which is in the original 1600 language and set out very, very traditionally. And you might say, I don't like this because it's just liturgy. And then you might go to a charismatic gathering at the other end where everyone's in designer dress. No one who appears up front is anything more than a size O. Everyone's got cool tattoos in just the right places to prove how trendy they once were. But that's still church as liturgy. It's still church as religious service. Someone will say, the Spirit's here, and someone will say, the Spirit's there. Uh, The reality is, if you do theology at a deeper level, the Spirit's everywhere. He has no option. God is omnipresent. God is the only person who has to show up at every religious meeting. He can't get out of them. He's everywhere. What we're talking about is just our taste and our choice of religious experience. 
So that's the first thing. Church as the provider of religious services. Then there's a second kind of church which has become very popular in our culture. It's called this. Church as the provider of religious services and some social projects. So you do religious services and you add a social project. It could be a food bank. It could be uh, a homeless lunch. It could be to set up a hostel for people that would otherwise not have secure accommodation. But it's still church's religious services and a social project, or two, or three, stuck on. In my view, church should neither be the provider of religious services, nor the provider of religious services plus a few social projects. In my view, the church must be the engine of Jesus-centered community transformation. And that's a bigger and deeper thing. It's the, tr- it's the conversion from belief in social engagement and social action to social politics, to thinking through the big questions. Why are we here where we are? The church should be the engine of Jesus-centered community transformation, which is both an external and an internal thing. Because some people say, oh, well, that's fine, Steve, but are you saying that the worship doesn't matter, the prayer doesn't matter? No, I'm saying that community transformation happens externally and internally. It's about how we're engaged in community, but it's the people that we are. Take a look at the newspapers on any day this week, just filled with who was cheating on their tax, who's been found out where. But the week before or the week before that, it was who was, who was throwing the games at Wimbledon. And then, I mean, I couldn't believe that, you know, like it even happens at Wimbledon. And then there's everything that there is to do with football and the bankers, etc., etc., etc. So... It's the internal change that we need. How can I be trusted with the affairs of the city if I can't be trusted as a person? It's about my internal integrity as well as my, the external expressions of who I am. And that is why church, I believe, is the true engine of real community transformation because it doesn't ignore the hardest bits which is the transformation in me the changing of my attitudes and my motives and the outcomes for me it doesn't externalize everything and just leave it there the church's mission must be holistic integrated, wrap around, internal and external, because Jesus' mission was like that. Flick read to us from uh, Isaiah chapter 61, from the Old Testament, and you would have recognized, I'm sure, loads of you, that these are the exact verses, passage, from the Old Testament that Jesus quotes when he talks about who he is. I have come to bring good news to the poor. I have come to set the oppressed free. I have come to give sight to those who are blind. 
I have come to announce the year of the God's Jubilee for everyone ongoingly. That is what I have come to do. If a church mission statement worked on by PR experts, branding experts, if a church mission statement takes five months, five years to work through, and it still doesn't say, we are here to bring good news to the poor, spiritually and socially and emotionally, it is wrong, whoever wrote it. It has to amount to that. Or, it moves away from what Jesus talked about. Here's a map of London. I got it off the internet. It's interesting because I typed in London and that's what came up. Mostly North London, a few things like in South London here. Historic monuments, tourist attractions, London the most attractive city in the world. Here is London. Canary Wharf. And in the shadow of all that wealth and gated communities... Suffering, overcrowding, lack of employment, lack of education, drug dealing, trafficking, swindling, cheating. I was asked, um, I, I am quite often asked this question because the schools that Oasis runs around the country, if we teach British values, you know, to teach British values in schools is really important. I was asked that by the Ofsted inspector of uh, this school here. Actually, I sat in a room with some of the uh, governors, uh, some of the academy council, and the Ofsted inspector, uh, who eventually gave us um, outstanding, as you know. Uh, everybody was scared of her. She was firm. And, uh, well, they're supposed to be, aren't they? And she looked at us and she said, what do you do about teaching British values? It was in a room there. There was just about five of us there. And for some unknown reason, everybody else in the room looked at me. I'm not the academy chair. In fact, Hillary, who's not here, as some of you know, is the academy chair. Uh, she was there, and Carly was there, who's the principal. And they all looked at me. And I had to give this answer to the question, what are we doing about teaching British values? And we were trying to get this outstanding. But you've got to be honest, haven't you? So I looked at her and I said, what do you mean? And she said, it's your duty to teach British values. How do you demonstrate them? I said, there's endless British values demonstrated in this part of the city. You can see Parliament out of the window. Avarice. Pride, gluttony, we don't teach those. We don't teach cheating, swindling. We try not to teach self-centered, monetarist lifestyle that leaves others in the gutter whilst, whilst I move on. Then I said to her, can you tell me, I know what you're supposed to say. Shall I tell you what British values actually are? You know, according, it's a democracy the rule of law, respect, and diversity. Um, that, that, that's the official list. So I, said, so I said, which of the values on display across at Parliament right now do you think we should be teaching? There was a deathly silence. And then the Ofsted inspector 
laughed. Afterwards, she said to me, privately, she said, that was the boldest answer I've ever heard to that question. Thank you. We stand for something different. We have a different way of doing politics, a different way of thinking. It's a Jesus-centered way. When I first began Oasis, which was 30-something, 30 and a bit years ago, um, we took on the first ever project that's part of Oasis. It's a hostel in Peckham. It's about four miles from here. And we house there, still to this day, at any one time, 16 young people, all women, most of them whom have been sexually or physically or emotionally abused. They've been let down by the people that they should have been able to trust. Now, we house, this last year, we house just over a thousand young people, which is an extraordinary thing. We rarely talk about what Oasis does in housing here because we haven't got any housing yet, though we are working on it. Um, as, as we speak kind of thing. But we house about a 1,000 young people a year. And what I learned from housing those young people down in Peckham was simply this. You see, when I'd become a Christian, I thought, what I would be is a church leader, then set up a hostel, then set up a school, then set up a hospital. And we set up this hostel. hostel. Philip, who's here, had a, a key part to play in that because he was the chair of Oasis then. And we set up this hostel, and I began to realize that actually we could take as many young people as we liked, and we could care for them and provide them with housing and provide them with education. We could provide this housing for as many young people as we liked. We could do it for 16 or 32 or 64. We could do it for thousands of young people. But actually, we still hadn't cracked the problem. And I realized through reading William Booth, who was the founder of the Salvation Army, that what I had to do in William Booth's terminology is move upstream. We were running a rescue mission for kids who'd been beaten back black and blue and let down. We were hauling people out of the river and we were giving them housing in Peckham and now we give them housing elsewhere. But it soon hit me that this is stupid. I could spend my whole life reaching into the river that was dragging people away in its current and rescuing them and helping them ones, twos, threes, fours, fifties, hundreds, thousands maybe. But the torrent was dragging countless thousands of other people away. And I had to make a choice. And the choice was this. Do I run a rescue mission all my life? Or do I move upstream? And find out why it is that all these kids fall into the river in the first place. That's the problem with running social projects as a church. We run a food bank. We run a food bank. It's good to run a food bank. But we have to ask, why are there people in our city who cannot eat and suffer the humiliation of queuing up to have to ask for food? It's desperate. Sometimes, I'm glad that many of you help with this, we go down to Tesco's to collect food. Thank you for coming. Please come. And when we advertise that, it's great. But I'll ask, I'll ask customers to donate some food to us. And sometimes, as I'm asking them, I want to cry. 
I want to cry that the injustice of this city is so great that nobody actually gives a stuff that that is the way it is. So if Sadiq Khan had been here, you prepared a fantastic list of questions uh, for him. Uh, uh, just brilliant questions. Thank you for everybody who sent them in. They're brilliant. We send them through. And lots of you ask questions about housing and about unaffordable rents and about the poor being squeezed and squashed out and estates being run down where the housing gets poorer and poorer until the social housing provider can perhaps rebuild and rebuild in a different way. Where is going to be the justice for those who have no justice? This is um, a picture of the Aylesbury estate. Do you recognise it? Uh, just, it's no longer... I think this block is still there, actually. Uh, it's, it's down by the park. But these blocks are coming uh, down really fast. This is social housing. It's really poor social housing. It's awful social housing. When Tony Blair was elected first as Prime Minister, this is where he stood and said, education, education, education. But the blocks are coming down and private housing is being built. It's the Elephant and Castle redevelopment. One-bedroom flats are going for £400,000, some of them. So who cares? How can we carry on in a kind of worship, private worship fill without engaging in these big questions? The Bible starts with a picture of a garden. The Garden of Eden tells the story of Adam and Eve. It's a myth. It's a story. It's not a piece of history. It's teaching. It's like the, it's like the hare and the tortoise. It's a wonderful parable. It's teaching us a great truth about when people come together, actually they argue and they fight and they blame one another because of our fallenness, our self-centeredness. And so what we do is we spoil the garden. We spoil what God has given to us with our own self-centeredness rather than our outward-lookingness. But the Bible ends with a completely different picture. It begins with a, gar a picture of a garden that's beautiful that's spoilt by human selfishness and buck-passing. And it ends with a picture of a city. The journey of the Bible is from garden spoilt to city. Let me read these words from Revelation. Chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now with uh, people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and, the, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, nor mourning, nor crying, nor pain, nor high rents, nor abuse, nor neglect, nor loneliness. 
nor suffering. All of these things have passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write these words down, for they are trustworthy and they are true. The Bible starts with a garden and it ends with a city. What so many people know of city life is alienation. What so many people know of city life is that their voice doesn't count. They have no voice. What so many people know of city life is loneliness, economic depression. Our task is to build a city that is inclusive. I said I'd talk about London and about um, uh, Europe. I'm not now going to go on a great lurch about Europe. It's simply this. Isn't it amazing? Every morning, I get up to Radio 4, unless I'm up before the Today program starts, but otherwise it, at 6 o'clock, wakes me up. And every single morning now, there is someone putting the economic case. You listen to it very carefully. I say, it's the economic case for leaving Europe or the economic case for staying in Europe. There's another case that's put. It's the security case. Are we going to be safer if we cut ourselves off from Europe or stay in Europe? So with the, but the economic case is the most overruling one. You see it. They constantly talk about the economic reasons for staying or going. And then there's other r- random things thrown in, like Boris, you know, Boris Johnson, who says that if we leave Europe, we'll be able to recycle our tea bags. You know, that's great. You know, I didn't want to say, Boris, I already recycle mine. But there you go, it's probably against some law somewhere. And I, I read just last night that if we leave Europe, we won't be able to go on booze cruises anymore. There you go. That's as far as it goes. The economic case for leaving or staying, plus, will we be able to cruise for booze? Have you heard anyone, and I say this a few days before the government will deliver to us the case for staying in Europe, we don't know what that leaflet will say yet, have you heard anyone actually put to you the moral case, the spiritual case for staying or going? If Jesus were here physically and we could ask him, I've got a hunch, and I think you know this if you've read more than four or five verses of anything Jesus ever said, that he would ask this question. Who will benefit? Who will protect the poorest, the most vulnerable? How do we arrange ourselves so that the most vulnerable people are cared for? Here we are. We are living through the greatest moral crisis since the Second World War. As endless migrant people are kicked and shoved and pushed by wars not created by them in the first place. Children who are losing their lives fast, endlessly, every day. Young people who are dying every day on mass scale. And we read about the Holocaust in history books and visit museums and say how bad it was. 
and somehow are unable to connect the two things because, because we don't want to. What is the case for staying in Europe or out of Europe? Let me tell you what I think. I am not trying to pin on you my view at all. Because as you know, I believe that a good sermon isn't one that you go away and say, Oh, wasn't that good? Wasn't that good? Oh, didn't he tell a good joke or a good story? A good sermon is always one that gets you going away debating. Because the term preaching in the New Testament meant debate. It didn't mean some bod stood up in front like me rattling on. It meant conversation. I believe, my personal belief, I'm not trying to put this on anyone else, is that we should stay in Europe. I believe that we should stay in Europe because I think we have to create the safest environment for everyone. And I believe there's lots and lots of things wrong with Europe. There's lots and lots of things wrong with all bureaucracies, aren't there? People who invent rules sat in offices who never actually go out and meet anyone. That's, that's, that's the problem. So I believe there needs to be massive reform, not just of Europe, but of the way we run London. But I believe you're better in the debate than out of the debate. I always believe that. I always believe that about everything. Be in, not out. Be in that conversation where you can influence, not out of it. I think that we have these giant wall, uh, rings of inclusion on, on the wall and on our news sheet. It's Oasis Circle of Inclusion. But that inclusion must be for everyone. I happen to believe the best way of bringing that about is to be in but not out. I'm not telling you uh, that that's the right answer. Uh, you must think about it yourself. But let's think about the moral and spiritual reasons for exiting or staying in Europe, not just the economic reasons, because when we read back the history and it was all about our economy, it will make us look awfully shallow. What about Greece, James? That's a good question. Let's talk about it over coffee. All right. <laughs> when you get involved in politics, you get rubbished constantly. I got into a lot of trouble. I didn't mention it to anyone here. I got into a lot of trouble these last few weeks because the Guardian, bless them, uh, friends of mine in some ways, I last had, I had dinner with a Guardian journalist who's a lovely lady um, just a few weeks ago, but somebody else in the Guardian wrote this article about people that run academies and said that the CEOs of academy providers in London are failing schools and earning giant wages, average £225,000 a year. This is really hurtful to me. One, because everybody assumed that I'm the CEO of Oasis and the CEO of Oasis Community Learning and therefore I earn £225 a year on average. I am not the CEO of Oasis Community Learning and don't earn £225,000 a year. But nor does the CEO of our schools is the highest paid earner in Oasis. He, his name's John, doesn't earn anywhere near that. He earns the salary a senior head teacher would earn. But the problem is, loads of people running academies pay half a million pounds to some of these people, so the average wage goes up, and we all get tarred with that brush. And then people say to me, oh, well, I won't give to what Oasis is doing because you earn this great fortune. Well, I don't, and no one does. 
And even if anyone did in Oasis, it wouldn't be me. But it wouldn't be anyone in Oasis because we've got a circle of inclusion. So when we get involved in politics, it's always going to be tough. But we must get involved. Because our job is to bring the good news of Jesus to everyone. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, said Paul in Ephesians, but against principalities and powers. There are principalities and powers that operate around our city. And our job is to bring the good news of Jesus into that city.